Welcome to the Real Clear Politics Takeaway for Friday, July 9th. I'm Andrew Walworth. Well, according to President Biden, when it comes to Afghanistan, this is not a mission accomplished moment, but he also insists the mission hasn't failed yet. That was one takeaway from Thursday's press conference, where he defended his decision to pull remaining American troops out of Afghanistan, even as the Taliban makes military advances throughout the country. And the National Education Association, which is the country's largest labor union and represents more than 3 million educators, weighed in on the debate over critical race theory by passing a resolution endorsing the right to teach critical race theory in public schools in the face of a growing movement by state legislatures to restrict what many conservatives consider indoctrination, not education. And we have a winner, at least for now, in the Democratic primary for mayor of New York. It took two weeks to determine the victor, largely because of the use of rank choice voting, which we've talked about here before. Some say it was a huge success. Others say it was a terrible mess. So what does it mean for the future of rank choice voting in a time when many Americans say they are losing faith in the electoral process? Joining me to talk about all this are Tom Bevan, co-founder and president of Real Clear Politics, Carl Cannon, Washington Bureau Chief, and Phil Wegman, White House Correspondent. So, Tom, let's start with President Biden's Thursday press conference. He was talking about pulling the U.S. troops out of Afghanistan. How did the president do? Uh, What happens next? The president did fine. This is largely a continuation of Donald Trump's policy of, of withdrawing troops you know, from our longest war. It is largely supported by the public, but I think you can quibble with, or maybe quibble is not the right word, take issue with the execution because it seems like, you know, just the the images that we've seen, the way that, you know, Bagram Air Force Base was looted. We just kind of left in the middle. We bugged out in the middle of the night. We didn't tell the leaders of the Afghan government that we were going necessarily, didn't inform all the right people. We left behind all of our folks who had been allied with us, the translators and folks who, we, you know, even Biden mentioned, we want to get those people to the U.S., but it takes months to get them visas approved. So I, the policy itself is not the problem, but I think the way the Biden administration has executed the policy is not necessarily the best. And I think uh, they could have done a better job. And and hopefully it's not going to lead to terrible ramifications, but it certainly could. Well, Phil, it was a more lively press conference than we've seen lately. Um Biden got testy a few times with some of the questions. Is the press getting more aggressive, do you think? And what did you make of the press conference? I wouldn't say that the press is getting more aggressive. I think that this was a opportunity to uh, talk with Biden uh, on an issue that a lot of these reporters, I mean, especially ones who are my age, this is sort of a defining issue, right? Um, It's it's generational, you know, since 9-11. You know, we've been in Afghanistan for 20 years. So the the questions... um, by their nature, we're, we're going to be uh, more aggressive. Um, it was interesting that this was a true press conference, something that is pretty rare in the Biden administration. Joe Biden walks out, gives short remarks, and then he literally faces the music. Uh, he doesn't call on reporters from a list. Instead, he sort of moves as the uh, uh, as the spirit takes him and answers questions here and there. That was good um, in terms of uh, of a news gathering. Uh, perspective. Uh, we've got a, a better sense of, of what the president believes. And, um, you know, he, he faced tough questions. Uh, he certainly seemed to snap once or twice. Uh, but, you know, we we heard, um, you know, his opinion yeah, straight out of his mouth and, and not filtered through the, the press office. 
Carl, the shadow of Vietnam hung over that press conference, and Biden went out of his way to reject any parallels. But, you know, this is not ancient history to him. Uh, He actually ran against the war in his first campaign back in 1972. Uh, So he knows this history very well. Are these comparisons valid? Well, that was... It was that comparison that was one of the things he got testy about. And, uh, you know, he said, uh, well, yeah, he wants to reject that comparison, but that's what that's what people automatically thought. of. We talked about this in our podcast early in the week. You know, it reminded people of uh, the, the, the way that the Americans left Kabul, reminded people of the way they left Saigon in, in 1975. Um, you know, and Biden also, he also seemed to reject um, any implicit comparison with George W. Bush. He said, this was not a mission accomplished moment. The mission accomplished, you know, came when we got Osama bin Laden. But that begged the question, that happened 10 years ago. That happened, that happened, you know, half, we've been there 20 years. It happened 10 years ago. I think the American people are wondering, you know, both things. Uh, Why were we there so long? And why did we leave? And why did we leave in such a chaotic way? I, I don't know that there was any easy way to leave there. In in fairness to the commander of chief, but it doesn't. As Tom pointed out, are you leaving behind translators? Are you leaving behind people who helped you? Um, since we've been pulling out of there gradually for five years, why weren't these visas given a long time ago? So I still have questions. I don't think the president really answered them. Whatever the president says is the assumption that the Taliban will take over in six months and things will revert to a chaos in the country. Well, Biden says no, that his, I mean, and he said that explicitly yesterday when asked, you know, he he has faith in the capacity of the Afghan government um, and that his intelligence services have told him that that's their assessment, that they have the ability to do this. But, you know, the early indications don't look good. I mean, the Taliban says they've already taken control of 85% of the country and we've seen these pictures of of Afghan army troops laying down their weapons and shaking hands with the Taliban. So the problem is, look, the American people, you know, we've gone through multiple crises in this country, right? The financial meltdown of 2008, we've had, uh, you know, now COVID. And the appetite for for spending all of this money and treasure abroad is is just no longer there. That's part of what propelled Trump to the Republican nomination when, you know, he sort of caught the much of the party flat-footed, right? They just assumed that this interventionism of George W. Bush was a good and positive thing and everybody supported it. And it turned out, no, that wasn't really the case, actually. Even Republicans were souring on this idea of nation building abroad when, when we've got so many issues here at home. Tom, can I add something to that right there? Sure. Would you, would you say, I think that's the key, that's a key point. Um, what Tom just said, we've got unrest in our streets. We had a mob um, attack our capital uh, after an election, which half the country didn't accept. We have murder rates tripling in some cities. It, you know, it, Af- It's tempting to say Afghanistan is ungovernable, but if you live in Afghanistan and you look at the United States, you'd, you'd think, well, who are they to tell us how, how to behave? I, I think what's going on in our country now has actually undermined our moral authority for nation building, or at least... Uh, the you know it seems that it will seem that way to some America's critics and some of our friends. Yeah, more to the point, Carl. The appetite among the American public. I mean, you know, George Bush's second inaugural. You know, nine eleven was still fresh in our minds. There was this desire. Hey, we need to make sure we need to do whatever we we have to do to make sure this doesn't happen again. And if that means staying in Afghanistan for 
you know, five years or 10 years, the public was all for it, right? The public was even for, uh, at least initially, I think, the move into Iraq um, based on the judgment of that administration, which turned out to be flawed, that, that you know, that was going to make the U.S. safer. Um, that appetite is no longer there. And so I think whether the Taliban takes over or not, I don't think Americans, you know, they probably would say that's not a good thing, but it's one of those like, hey, it's their problem. It's no longer our problem. Now, where it gets tricky is, is and this is where I, I have my doubts, right? The idea that, that the U.S. intelligence services, you know, to the extent that it becomes a, a, a haven for terrorists again who want to do harm to us and start to attack our interests in around the globe and including here at home, um, if we go through a replay and a repeat of that of 9-11 or something along those lines where we have terrorists come to our, our country and attack us, you know, theoretically, we'd have intelligence services that could harden our defenses, prepare us for that, and we we wouldn't have to spend, you know, have have a military footprint in Afghanistan just to prevent that scenario from happening. Um, but I'm I'm not so certain. And if something like that happens, you, people will look back and say, "Boy, maybe it was a mistake." Bill, what do you think? I think there's a distinction that we can draw between the foreign policy of Joe Biden versus. Obama and Bush, and then versus Trump. He clearly in 2009 opposed uh, Obama's surge in the country, which made yesterday's press conference a bit of a I told you so moment. Um, The press secretary has pointed reporters back to his comments for some time. Uh, You know, Joe Biden um, wanted to leave. And and sort of the message yesterday was, uh, how many more generations of young Americans can we send over there uh, to, you know, to make the the ultimate sacrifice? That's uh, a break with what Obama did. It's clearly a break with what Bush did. Uh, But what's interesting is that it's, it's not necessarily um, that different than what you know Trump wanted to do. I think that Biden is reading the tea leaves and seeing that you know that the country, um, you know, both Republicans and Democrats are more interested in uh, you know, as Tom said, uh, what's happening here in our country than in nation building abroad. And um, you know, Trump tried to pull the United States out of Afghanistan. I mean, there's reporting that he tried to pull off a a last ditch retreat in the, the last months of his administration that was ultimately foiled uh, by, by the Pentagon just because it was so sloppy and last minute. But Biden was was successful there. And I think well, wait, that, another way of saying that is Biden did what Trump wanted to do. Yeah, yeah. Biden finished the job. I'm no, not sure no, that's success. <laughs> not, not necessarily success. And so there's no like, there, there's not there's not Trump's plan ceasefire between the Taliban and the Afghan government just yet. But in terms of a political issue, um, I think this pretty... This solidifies that at least at this moment, um, you've got both major parties who, yeah, it might have taken two decades, but both major parties are seem to be of the mind that no, nation building doesn't work and we can't uh, pull people up to democracy uh, because voters want you know the focus to be here, not over there. Well, we'll see what happens next, but I will say that it appears to me at least that the way we're withdrawing is not conducive to the kind of future we'd like to see in Afghanistan. There are about 25 terrorist groups at work in the region. This may embolden them. And I also should say that at least some people familiar with Afghanistan think that advances had been made in terms of women's rights, civil society, free press, stuff like that, and that all those advances are more likely to be reversed now. But 
Let's move on. I want to talk about the NEA and critical race theory, which they defended in a resolution at their annual convention over the 4th of July weekend. And the statement read in part that they support the teaching of, and this is a mouthful, so bear with me, guys, the following concepts. Empire, white supremacy, anti-blackness, anti-ingenuity, racism, patriarchy, cis-heteropatriarchy, capitalism, ableism, anthropocentrism, which has to do with animal rights, I think, and other forms of power and oppression at the (laughs) intersections of our society, and that we oppose attempts to ban critical race theory and or the 1619 Project. Now, Carl, one of the defenses of CRT is that it is a narrow academic approach to interpreting history and culture, but this sounds pretty broad. It does sound like an advocacy of a unified left-wing agenda, if not outright indoctrination. Has the NEA created a bigger problem for itself by defining the issue in this way? Well, Andy, can I also add, I mean, one of the, one of the things they say is that it's not being taught. It's, it's only confined to, you know, these law schools. It's not being taught at all. So why are they adopting a resolution in the first place? Well, it, it's, it, yeah, I've been reading my favorite uh, hometown paper, the Washington Post, and these other outlets that basically portray this fight over critical race theory as uh, a Republican plot, uh, an imagined threat, uh, the new boogeyman, uh, that it's all, none of it's happening. and, And the little that is happening is good. So now we have the National Education Association, the largest teacher union in the country, by the way, throwing, slipping that word capitalism in there as though it's a bad thing that that right so we have this com- country based on the idea of freedom and free markets and our teachers unions uh public employees paid by the government um are saying that they're going to start weaning the school children of this country off of capitalism and all these other isms i you know it, it's 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 left wing i don't know if it's left wing it's 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 just it's really out there i mean it it's not it's not where the American people are. It's not where you've ever been before. It uses all this jargon. That, until just a few years ago, this was considered a, kind of a crackpot fringe notion that the country, because we once had slavery, will always be racist. And and everything that happens comes from that period of time. Now it's uh, you got the largest teacher union embracing it. I'm curious how this is going to play in the midterm elections next year. I'm curious about that too, which is why I'm trying to get a hold of the first lady's office because the first meeting that she takes after inauguration, she invites two people, Becky Pringle and Randy Weingartner to the White House. Those are the heads of the two largest teachers unions. She's a member of the teachers union. In that meeting, Jill Biden promises uh, to the teachers unions that the president is going to help them transform the country. Uh, Biden owes a lot to teachers unions and he clearly has their back. But this is really interesting because this culture war issue is not something that the administration necessarily wants. Yes, they'll uh, nominate uh, people who believe in critical race theory, uh, sure. But for the most part, the administration, they they don't want this culture war. Uh, But, you know, as you just mentioned a second ago, you have these teachers unions who have insisted uh, first, well, critical race theory isn't being taught to children. And then second, they turn around and they, they pass uh, this uh, this resolution. So so where does that put the administration? Where, what does Joe Biden and Dr. Jill Biden think about the idea 
of anti-racism curriculum being in the K through 12 uh, classroom? That's that's a question that I think that the administration is going to have to answer eventually because this isn't just like Chuck Todd said, a manufactured thing. This isn't just like what you know Jane Mayer of the New York New Yorker called it uh, an astroturf campaign. This is something that touches parents, um, you know, around the the dinner table. It's their kids. And uh, the the administration, they've been trying to to stay out of this fight, but they're going to get pulled into it one way or the other. Tom? Well, I think it is a problem for the Democrats. Um, You know, the latest spin, first it was, oh, it's not being taught. And then suddenly it's like, well, we're just teaching honest history. Why are are Republicans, you know, in these uh, states around the country passing these laws banning us from teaching honest history? And that's... So there's been this sort of shift in the rhetoric because I think they were losing the battle um, initially. But, you know, for all of the talk, not only did they pass this resolution, right, they had – who did they have speak to the national meeting of the teachers unions? Ibram Kendi, right, the original CRT anti-racist guru. And he was asked uh, about the fur fur over CRT – and I'm reading now from the from an article the AFT actually wrote of the they wrote up their own event, um, and they asked him about the fur over critical race theory and related pushes against teaching about enslavement and discrimination. Kendi compared it to the reaction to Brown versus Board of Education when some white people were fearful that desegregated schools were going to ha- be harmful to their children. And then he was asked by another teacher about uh, how educators should handle these state laws that prohibit anti-racist education. And he referenced the civil rights era when school curricula in the South taught that the KKK saved the white South from corruption, among other lies. So here you have the teachers unions are, are featuring a speaker who's comparing this grassroots uprising of parents all across the country, not just in the South. This is happening, you know, in my state of Illinois. It's happening in California. It's happening in the New England. It's happening all over the place. In 2021, okay, comparing uh, that to 1954, the pro-segregation forces of 1954, pro-KKK forces, you know, in the uh, civil rights era of 1964. I don't think that's going to be a good plan for the Democrats to respond to this by just saying, well, this is a obviously this is an example of, you know, the the white supremacist forces pushing back. You know, I mean, it's it's much broader. It's much deeper. It's much wider than that. And that's going to get them in trouble when they start saying calling basically school board, you know, uh, members and parents and PTA presidents around the country, you know, white supremacists and racists. Um, I don't think that's going to go down well. Can I add to that really quickly? I think that something that is being lost here is that when we think about culture wars, more often than not, the framework is the right gets angry about something, the right is the aggressor, and the left sort of pushes back. Republicans pounce? Yeah, Republicans pounce, exactly, that sort of framework. But in in this issue, um, that seems completely flipped, at least from a conservative or a Republican perspective. Um, When I sat down with Josh Hawley, his argument was, I don't want to have this fight. I don't want to be fighting with the administration over whether or not the people they want to staff their government with believe in CRT. But instead, this is something that's being foisted on us. We're not the aggressors here. We're reacting to something. And I think that, frankly, it's insulting to a lot of these parents who are being told, 
um, no, this isn't happening, this isn't real, and then they see it in their their school districts. And I think it's going to be doubly insulting uh, when if they raise their hand and say, hey, you know, um, you know, we entrust you, you know, in the place of parents, uh, we entrust you, you know, with authority of our kids, and we have concerns to sort of get pushed back by Kendi and others who are saying, well, you're acting no differently than, than those who opposed uh, Brown v. Board of Education or busing or something like this. Um, you know, this isn't AstroTurf. I think that this is something that could very quickly become a, an animating driver of, you know, even non-ideological parents. Uh, Andy, taking it out of the election for a moment, I also think it it's doesn't it doesn't do it's not a good thing for public education. During the pandemic, you had these teachers unions and who state the teachers union state said their their members couldn't go to work. You now, you know, in all these states and big cities. I, and I was thinking back in 1996 when Bob Dole ran for president, he attacked the teachers unions and differentiated between teachers unions and teachers. And the public didn't really buy it. They they thought it was an attack on the union was an attack on the teachers. I'm not sure that I'm not sure Bob Dole's, um, I think his distinction might be heard more today. You had, during during this pandemic, you had the teachers staying out of school. You had them, you know, in San Francisco trying to rename schools. In Los Angeles, saying they'd only come back to work if the, you know, district did away with charter schools. Uh, And now you have, you know, their unions supporting critical race theory and a very very aggressive version of it. Um, So, you know, and, and I think most taxpaying parents think, you know, I don't want any of this crap from the teachers. I want them to teach my kids and, and teach them to how to think and how to read and write. And I think they have, and I, I, my question is whether this, all this political activity is going to hurt teachers and, and the public's idea of teachers and in turn hurt support for public education. We do have 22 states now that have proposed legislation. Five have actually passed, uh, Idaho, Iowa, Oklahoma, Texas, and Tennessee all now have on the books uh, restrictions on teaching critical race theory. I want to move on, but I did find this one quote that I thought was interesting. This is Pomona College politics professor Omar Wasau, who is a CRT um, advocate. And he says, various studies find that when white people are exposed to information about social change, demographic change in particular, they express more politically conservative views. So there's a larger conversation happening right now about whether the U.S. is going to be a multiracial democracy in which there's no dominant group or hold on to what has historically been kind of an ethno-racial majority, a white Christian dominant majority. It seems to me what he's saying is that when you teach people that race is the most important thing about them or gender or whatever, they believe it. (laughs) Tom, does that sort of show the, the real danger here, which is that quite apart from everything else, If we teach people that race and gender are the most important things about their own identity, what does that do to the society as a whole? It's absolutely true. And and, um, I think, you know, we've we've heard about this over the past few years about how, you know, whites have never really thought of themselves as a – via their racial identity. But they suddenly have start to think that way because that's the way – everything now is being pushed through this uh, racialized lens and – uh, so I think there is some truth to that. It's it's divisive and destructive. It is in direct contradiction to the idea of the United States in general as being sort of a, a multiracial melting pot, right? E pluribus unum. Uh, it's a, you know Dr. King's vision of you know 
being a colorblind society, judging people by the content of the character. Um, and so I, I think it's, a, it's, it's very destructive, very destructive. And people are generally supportive, I think, and the, the numbers bear this out, of, of, you know, being sort of going through this quote-unquote racial reckoning and saying, look, there are still problems in our society and they need to be addressed. And the problem that I think we have is that for, for folks at CRT, uh, proponents of CRT, folks on the left, they make this argument that, like, we've had no progress at all. I mean, this is this is what Kendi's saying. It's just like 1954. Jesse Jackson, for him, it is forever, you know, Selma in 1950s. I mean, it's just like there has been enormous progress in this country. Is it perfect? No. Is there still racism out there? Sure. But there's a difference between acknowledging that and supporting efforts at that and then turning around and saying, particularly, right, uh, in schools, as as Phil said, when you send your kids off and, and to, to these educators to to basically want them to learn to read and write and arithmetic, right? That's what we need um, when they are basically being, you know, indoctrinated and told and they're taking, you know, hours and hours out of the day or, you know, out of the week to be taught uh, through this sort of racialized curriculum. Um, not saying we shouldn't teach history, not, sh- not saying we shouldn't talk about slavery, the original sin of the country and discrimination, all that stuff. Um, but the way that the left has sort of pursued this, I think, has caused people, uh, in particular white people, to be, I think, think about themselves in a different way and get defensive. And, and it's, it's terribly destructive, I think, for the country. Well, I'm going to move on to New York now. Just uh, we do have a winner. Uh, it's been two weeks. Uh, Eric Adams is the winner of the Democratic uh, primary for mayor. He's Brooklyn's current borough president. He was a former NYPD captain. Uh, This was announced on Tuesday that he had won. He ran a campaign largely focused on crime. So, uh, Carl, first, you know, what does that tell us about crime as an issue? And secondly, uh, they used ranked choice voting. Uh, It was the first time they used it in in New York City. How did it go? And what are the lessons from that? Well, um, this was interesting. Let's talk about the crime thing first, because that's the simplest. We we keep seeing these headlines. Um, American voters concerned about crime, like that's a surprise. Well, they're concerned about crime because crime, violent crime is increasing dramatically and significantly and it's in a frightening degree in all these big cities. So the voters are responding accordingly. Uh, Eric Adams was the man for the moment. Uh, he once, he joked during the campaign that not only, you know, that gun laws weren't, weren't the problem, but that he himself might pack a pistol if he was mayor. So he, he later backed off of that. But so he was, in many ways, the man for the moment. But but could he get there through ranked choice voting? So this is the system where you, you rank who you want to be number one, but then also two, how you want to be number two. And, you know... I think three, four, and five, too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the point was, and then when you... It's like... And, and it's funny because we act like it's this esoteric concept, but... Really, if you live in a family unit of more than three people, uh, you use rank choice, rank choice voting pretty much every day to decide what's for dinner. And, you know, we and <laughs> is that why we can never figure out what to eat at our house, Carl? <laughs> and it takes you two weeks to decide <laughs> like it did in New York. Unbelievable. And, so, and, and, you know, and Andy, for people who, you know, remember their old politics or when, when these conventions had brokered conventions, when the 
political parties that broker conventions, that's ranked choice voting. Your 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 guy drops out, and then you have to go to your next person. So it's a well known concept in American democracy. And what happened in New York was really interesting because and and it's it's supposed to produce it's designed to produce uh, more mainstream candidates, more moderate candidates, candidates of a, of a better temperament, candidates who listen to mo- people who are liked by people, even if they don't agree with you. It's designed to get you better people. Um, and in New York, it seems to have worked. And I'm not I'm not saying Eric Adams is a better person than uh, Catherine Garcia or um, uh, Maya Wiley, the the person who finished. But she's a civil rights lawyer with no real experience in government, and she's on the left of these issues we've been talking about. And she finished second to Adams in the initial count. And in the old system, that had been the end of it. But then in the ranked choice voting, Catherine Garcia came very close within, I think, 8,500 votes. And I think they had almost a million cast. So very close enough that AP called it, as you said, but very close. What, what is that? What would the message there if you're Eric Adams? The voters want a person who can work with other people, a temperate, per, a more temperate person. Uh, the message there to me is that he has to unite that city and and that some people who didn't vote for him had questions whether he was the guy to do it and thought she might be better at that. So to me, the voters in the Democratic primary in New York have spoken. Now, there's, I said almost a million votes. I guess that's about a quarter of the tr- people turned out registered Democrats. So in a city of 8 million, you have, you know, 30% of 900,000. I mean, it's, it's, you can look at this closely and get and think there were votes to be had. And then there's the there's the general election against, uh, who did they, is the Guardian Angels guy, is he going to be the Republican? Yeah, Curtis he, Sliwa. Yeah, so let's just say that Eric Adams is the mayor-elect, de facto mayor-elect of, of New York. But ranked choice voting, um, there's a guy named uh, Rob Ritchie. We've inter- I've interviewed him, and he's written for us. Uh, he's the head. He's the CEO of Fair Vote, which is the main organization, the reform group pushing it. And he was pretty disappointed with the New York Board of Elections performance in counting these votes, but he was not disappointed in the results. Uh, he thought Rake Joyce Boney worked, and I tend to agree with him. So, Phil, let me just try a little bit of counterfactual history. What if... Eric Adams, who won the most votes, what if one of the other candidates who wasn't number one had won the election? Would people still think that this had been a fair election? I think eventually people would have come around to the fact that the conclusion in this counterfactual was was right. Um, it certainly would have been a uncomfortable learning process, but I'm not sure it's the uncomfortable learning process that the, the country needed right now. If you look at back at 2020 and 2021, we've seen again and again the institutions that we place our trust in are sort of uh, crumbling. People don't trust the media. Surprise, surprise. They don't trust um, you know, scientific experts, uh, especially after the pandemic. And there's also questions uh, about the legitimacy of elections. If a you know second tier candidate had sort of come back and won uh, because of ranked choice voting, I think that could have possibly been a, a bitter pill for for people to swallow at a moment when um, everyone is sort of wondering uh, if if all of these institutions are are still getting it right. Um, you know, when I saw that New York was uh, was still counting votes and they, they didn't have a um, clear outcome immediately, it kind of took me back to to Iowa. Uh, in in 2020, when 
Um, in the middle of the night, we find out that Iowa can't count all of its caucus votes. Yeah, so Tom, uh, Tom thinks we still don't know who won between Romney and Rick Santoro <laughs> in, in the Iowa caucuses. I mean, that's the problem, right? It's 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 not necessarily the the system, but the 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 organization. I mean, if if New York hadn't screwed this up, right, and injected this level of like you know chaos and uncertainty by saying, "Oh my gosh, we you know we had this mistake." Um, I think people would be much more confident in in the system and and ranked choice voting. I, so again, with the caucuses, I mean, what a debacle! I mean, why can't we just seem to count votes? Um, not even that many votes, right? It's it's it shouldn't be that hard. Um, and I think this gets to the broader issue of voting rights and what we're going through now, where you've got. You know, Democrats are furiously fighting any effort to, uh, as Republicans would frame it, you know, protect the integrity of the ballot, right? Any restriction of any kind is considered uh, sort of beyond the pale, Jim Crow 2.0, um, although they have now basically after, uh, you know, signed on to the idea of Manchin's bill that, that maybe you should have to show an ID, uh, that that's not necessarily a, 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 you know, relic of Jim Crow. So we'll see. But I mean... Our voting systems are when you actually get down and look at them, uh, you know, and the hanging chads and whatnot. The sausage is not—it's not pretty when the sausage is made, and there's a lot of cleaning up that can and should be done to make to to provide the sort of trust, rebuild the trust in in those systems, the election systems in particular, that have been eroded over over. You know, not just this past cycle, but but numerous cycles. Well, Carl, I'm going to give you the last word, or try to give you the last word. Damn it. <laughs> And you're, you're kind of a goo-goo. You like all this sort of complicated voting stuff. I, I, I have to say, I, I think it's uh, maybe a little too complicated uh, by half and a little too clever, uh, you know, because Maya Wiley did say, you know, uh, uh, we must recommit ourselves to a reformed board of election, build new confidence in how we minister voting in New York City. She's going to challenge this is, is the point. And uh, uh, on the other hand, you know, there was this exit poll, 83% of voters ranked at least two of the candidates. So they actually understood that you were supposed to put more than one name down. And 95% said they found the ballot simple to compete, complete. 77% want to use ranked choice voting in the future elections. Um, so it seems like there was some support for it. Um, how do you come down? Or do, you know, given this experience, are you still a, still a goo-goo on this? Yeah, I think it's the future. Look, Maya Wiley's a civil rights lawyer. I'd be disappointed in her if she wasn't going to seek legal <laughs> legal remedy. Come that's on, what, that's what she does. But uh, look, and 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 her complaint about the board, elections board of New York that De Blasio uh, appointed these people to, uh, he it's a mess, and everybody it's the one thing New York Democrats all agree on. So I, they have to fix that so they can count the votes properly, but. Look, Andy, when I, when I, many years ago when I was in my cowboy phase, I had a pickup truck, and instead of an American flag that would have bothered certain people at the New York Times, I had a bumper sticker on there that said, don't vote, it just encourages them. <laughs> and when I went to work at National Journal, which is a good government magazine, and my wife said, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that bumper sticker fits in with your new place of employment. And, you know... I've grown. I'm not sure your pickup truck fit in in the <laughs> yeah. parking lot there. True, but anyway, <laughs> look, Ambrose Bierce, I love him. H.L. Mencken, these great iconoclasts of journalism, but 
don't vote, it just encourages them, is not the right ethos. The right ethos is to vote and then to have the politicians count the votes properly. And I think reforms designed to give us candidates who are less beholden to special interest and less representative of one wing on the spectrum, I'm in favor of all those reforms, and I think it's what can unify the country ultimately again. Well, we're going to leave it there. Um, we're going to come back to ranked choice voting, discuss that again in the weeks ahead, I think. And, uh, but I want to thank my guests, Tom Bevan, Carl Cannon, Phil Wegman. Uh, we're here in various shapes and forms on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays. So bookmark this podcast, come back often. You can always find out more on realclearpolitics.com. I urge you to visit Real Clear Politics, read at least one piece from a publication or writer with whom you disagree. You can go to realcleareducation.com and realcleardefense.com for more news on some of the stuff we were talking about today. So thank you for listening. This has been the Real Clear Politics Takeaway for Friday, July 9th. Until next time, for Real Clear Politics, I'm Andrew Walworth.